Good morning. Today is September 21st, Wednesday. This is Nancy Kishpaw with the Independence Public Library interviewing John Vermillion. And John, would you mind telling, stating your full name? Uh, John Frederick Vermillion. How do you spell that last name, John? V-E-R, v, -E v is in victory. B-E-R-M-I-L-L-I-O-N. Okay, and when were you born? I was born on April, April 1, 1922, in Osawatomie, Kansas. What, what brought you to independence then? When did you come When I was four years old, my dad and granddad both worked in Missouri City Railroad shops in Osawatomie, and uh, and they were, the shop crashed, were on strike, and so Dad left the railroad, and he went into Kansas City for a couple of years with his plumbing, heating, and sheet metal talents, and he was up there, and then a fellow by the name of Fred Sellers had a plumbing and heating company here in Independence, and this was then back uh, in about 1926. That was Fred Sellers? Fred Sellers. And, uh, and so he hired my dad to come down on a, on a job that they were doing in Coffeville and uh, for a period of six months. And so dad came down and finished the job. And then when he got ready to leave, then Fred Sellers liked my dad and liked his work. And so he said, can I hire you full time to work for me? So dad accepted the job and uh, and then moved the family, and I was four years old, and I had a brother two years younger than I, and uh, my mother, and my brother, and myself, and dad, we came down here in the old Model T Ford, and uh, the first night in town, we slept out to Riverside Park in the car, and uh, and then dad found an old apartment, rented the apartment then, and then Fred Sellers, he worked for him uh, for about two years. And then Dad bought a couple, tried to buy a couple of houses. But uh, that was during the Depression, when the Depression hit. And so Dad missed one payment, then they'd foreclose on you. If you just missed one house payment, they'd foreclose. So that's what happened to Dad for about three different houses. He'd, and then in the meantime, Fred Sellers died, and so the business, they went out of business. So Dad went on his own, started his own little plumbing heating company, and, uh, and then he, he did some part-time sheet metal work for uh, a plumbing company, plumbing heating sheet metal company by the name of Eric and Doster, and Dad worked for them part-time as a sheet metal man. So, what was your dad's name? John Fred, John Fred Vermillion. He, he just went by Fred uh -huh. instead of Frederick. But the folks named me John Frederick. Uh -huh. uh, your mother's name? Mabel, M-A-B-E-L, Mabel Roseberry. Well, actually, her, ma her maiden name was Mabel Ellen Roseberry, R-O-S-E-B-E-R-R-Y. But, uh, but she went by Mabel Roseberry. Where were your parents from? 
originally. Uh, my, my dad was born in uh, Miami County in Osawatomie, uh -huh. and my mother was born in Lynn County, which is right next to Miami County, up around the Fort Scott area on uh -huh. the farm. And Dad served his apprenticeship as a, in, two, in two occupations. One was a printer, and one was a tennis made funding heating to work on locomotives. And for each apprenticeship, before he became a journeyman, he had to serve five years as an apprentice to become a journeyman. And Dad, so Dad got to be a journeyman in two trades. And he went as far as the eighth grade. And then my mother, she went over to Emporia State Teachers College and became a teacher. And uh, she taught school in Paola High School. Uh, she taught shorthand typewriting in Paola High School. And then, but mother and dad knew one another. And uh, so dad was 30 and mother was 28 when they got married. Because before before they got married, Dad was in World War One and served in France in the 49th Aero Squadron. And then when when he got home from the service, then they got married. And I was the first first child, first first child of five boys. Mother had five boys. And uh, what were your brothers' names? My brothers. The name George Heaton, he was two years younger. Uh -huh. And then, uh, then Richard Clare was four years younger than he. And then William Robert and James Jay. They were all, uh, James Jay, they only lived 10 months. He was, uh, had a defective heart condition. But uh, the, other, the other boys all lived. And of course, they've all passed away now. I'm the only one left. Have you always lived in independence? Well, ever since I was four years old. Uh, well, I was, uh, I was in California. I went to Independence High School and graduated. What year did you graduate? In 1940. Okay. And then it was, the depression was pretty bad. And so I was having a hard time making a living because I had to borrow well, I bought me a graduation suit and a shirt and tie. I owed $100 from the Hash Clothing Company here in Independence. And, uh, and the agreement was I was paying $5 a week. And it was hard to earn $5 a week. So I, I enrolled in Independence Junior College. That's back when they called it Independence Junior College. In the old Nice Hall building. And I went there a couple of months. But I was just, I was having a hard time making that payment. So a friend of mine told me, he said, there's some jobs in California that if you get out there, you can make, make some money. And uh, so I talked to my dad about it. And then mother and I said, I'm going to go to California. And I said, I said, uh, and they said, well, why are you going? I said, because I got to, I got to pay $5 a month, uh, $5 a week payment on my graduation suit. And Dad said, well, he said, I don't want you to go to California. He said, let's go down to the bank and I'll borrow the money and, I'll, and then you can pay me. And I said, no. Well, he said, yeah. He said, that's... So we went down to the bank and uh, the banker said, well, we can't loan you the, uh, about $100. He 
unless you put up your house as a mortgage. Well, Dad lost two or three houses, and so he wasn't about to do that. So he said, well, he said, that if you really go to California, he said, my, my brother George, he had a brother who lived in Long Beach and was pretty successful out there. And so he called my Uncle George and said, John wants to come out to California because of some jobs out there. So my Uncle George agreed to do that. And I'd stay there at his while I went to, while I went out to a trade school and uh, for about a month. And then I got me a job at Lockheed Aircraft Company and working the graveyard shift and making $35 a week. I never had so much money in my life. <laughs> and I paid off my graduation suit <laughs> and everything. And, uh, and I was going, doing pretty good until the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And then that changed my life then again. And uh, so then I came back home to join the Navy because you had to get your parents' consent. consent. Mm -hmm. And I was just about 18 and a half then by that time. And so I got me, got me a job in a, in a carpool, got, got me a ride in a carpool. And that's how I came back over the Highway 66, wow. and that's to Wichita. Uh -huh. And then Wichita, I came to Independence. And Wichita was just about Christmas Eve. By the time I got to Wichita, about Christmas Eve. This was I, in 1941, 42, mm -hmm. 41. And then 1941. And uh, December the 7th, 1941, when the mm -hmm. Jeffs right. were on Pearl Harbor. So this would have been December, Christmas Eve, 1941. And I, my folks didn't know I was coming home. And so I walked up to the <laughs> door knocked on the door and dad claimed the door and he looked at me and said what are you doing here and i said i come home join the navy to whip the japs and he said no son of mine's going to join and he said i was in world war one that was the war to end wars and i'm not sending a son of mine off the war so he wouldn't sign my papers to join for about six months so i went into wichita then got me a job at Stearman, the old Stearman Aircraft Company. And, uh, and I worked here, I'd come home every weekend. I said, Dad, I want to join the Navy now. Uh, finally, on July the 4th, 1942, he agreed to sign the papers. So I, I got the papers, went into Kansas City and joined the Navy. What was it like? In the Navy, I mean, where did you go? What was it okay. like at that time? When I joined the Navy, they put me in the Air, Navy Air Corps because I'd had experience working in aircraft factories. And um, so they put me in the Navy as an aviation machinist mate, third class, and uh, as an enlisted man. And uh, so then I was, I was uh, in Kansas City, kind of a uh, artificial boot camp, I mean, where we had military marching and this and, and then from then, after about three months of that, they sent me to Kodiak, Alaska, with an air transport outfit out there. And, uh, and then we, our, my job was to service, help service aircraft and so forth. And, uh, but I'd been reading about in the bulletin boards 
where the Navy was had started a program where they were only 100 enlisted men to volunteer if they wanted to become a Navy pilot. And uh, and I always thought, oh, that's right, I'd like to fly airplanes. And uh, so anyway, I, I applied for it. And I, and I was one of the 100, I don't know why or how, but I was one of the 100 that the Navy called in from the enlisted ranks uh -huh. to be a, to be, be taught about the pilot training. Wow. So I, I, I left Kodiak and came home and uh, they sent with orders to report into Monmouth College in Monmouth, Illinois. And there was 100, we met in Kansas City and then we took a train from Kansas City to, to Monmouth, Illinois, Monmouth College. And we started this, what you call the academic uh, training. It was kind of modeled after the, the Naval Academy where you had to square your meals and they were teaching all about, about the Naval, how to become a Naval officer. And uh, so I went through that program. About that, out of the 100, about 50 of them dropped out because they didn't, they didn't want to go through the procedure. Uh -huh. And that, between that and, and then you had to learn the aeronautics and you had to, you had to be somewhat educated. You couldn't, uh, you know, you couldn't be, I never was real educated, but I, I had basic education. And, uh, but anyway, so I survived that uh, three months and then they sent me to Webster College in what in uh, Ogden, Utah, and that's that's where I actually learned to fly airplanes, what we call Piper Cubs, and uh, so I was I was going through that program, and then the Navy came along, and said they didn't need as many pilots, as they anticipated, so they give give those of us who come under the the uh, the 100 personnel people that are still surviving. Uh, in the in the program, they give us an option. Said that we no longer the Navy no longer needs as many pilots, so therefore we're going to give you an option instead of washing you out of the program like you did if I went in as a silver civilian right into the program. We're going to since you came in as an enlisted man, we give you an option to go back to the fleet with the option that if, if the Navy needs pilots then you will be given the opportunity to come back into the program. So I took option two, which was, because option one, you had, you had to maintain a flying average of 3.5 minimum. Everything had to be 3.5 or above. And I was carrying about a 3.0, 2.8, and I just didn't want to compete for 3.5. I, I, I just wasn't that good. You know? mm -hmm. When it comes to academic, I could I could do all right with a flight, but when, when it comes to the military discipline, a lot of it, where you had to ask, fill out, take tests, and so forth, I just I didn't I didn't want to take a test and get washed out. Mm -hmm. So I took option two, and then they sent me back to the fleet, and they sent me to San Diego for a while, and then from San Diego they sent me to Honolulu, Hawaii with an air transport operation. And I was in, in Hawaii there with the Navy air transport outfit for about seven months. And I was reading the bulletin boards 
And it said the Navy's starting to need pilots again. So I went up to the personnel office and I said, I'm one of those guys that they're talking about. And the guy said, are you kidding? I said, no, that's what I'm looking He said, well, let me look up your file. So he looked up the file. He said, yeah, he said, you are. He said, that the only thing requirement is you got to be able to pass the physical. So I went over to sick bay, took a physical, come back with a physical approval. And they said, yeah, you got orders to report in the Iowa University in Iowa City, Iowa, for father pre-flight training. So I left, I left uh, Honolulu, came back, went, came home for about a week and reported in the Iowa City, Iowa, and uh, for, for the pre-flight training in uh, academics and so forth. And, uh, and I can remember we had some of the best coaches out there for coaches in our physical education. The big football, football and baseball coaches, they were our coaches at the, during the war. Uh -huh. And then I went through that program in about three months. And then, uh, then they sent me to Ogden, you know, to uh, Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, for uh, the flight training. And that's when I learned to fly these heavier planes, what you call, we call them yellow perils. They were, they were two-wing biplanes. They were yellow, but two open cockpits. And they had a horsepower engine, Pratt and Whitney, about 220. And you, they, you could fly them 70, 80 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but they were primarily for training to go on the heavier stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I ended up and when, the, when the wars were declared over. I ended up in, in Memphis flying those yellow perils. Mm -hmm. And then they came in along, and they always give you options. <laughs> They came and said, all the all you people want to make you maybe a career stand where you are. Those of them want to go back to civilian life, step over the line. And I thought, well, I'm really not a military guy. I, I joined primarily out of patriotism because, you know, it was a duty to defend my country. And uh, excuse me, when I talk, my mouth gets full of water. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I took options too, went, came back and joined, left the Navy. Mm -hmm. Because I really, like I said, I, I went in primarily patriotic, patriotic uh -huh. defend the country. And when what, that was over, I lost, uh, lost interest. What year, was that 1945? Uh, yeah, November the 6th, 1945, when I got discharged. And uh, so. What unit were you with, sir? What hmm? unit were you with when you, you, when you were in the Navy? Were you with a particular unit? Well, as I was in the air transport squadron and then in the pilot training program, but I, I never was in any, any armed conflict. Uh -huh. uh, I volunteered a couple of times for, for they wanted uh, 10 men to volunteer to go someplace that was kind of hazardous. Mm -hmm. And I kind of liked it. I'd, and I'd volunteer. Uh -huh. Every time they'd have it on the bulletin board, they need 10 volunteers. I'd volunteer every time. And I, they never would call me. And uh, I think probably because of it, I was uh, about 5'8", and I weighed about 125 pounds. I was all right for fitting in a cockpit of an airplane, mm -hmm. but I wasn't big enough to go out probably in some real heavy, heavy deal. Mm -hmm. 
That's really, probably that's the reason they never did call me. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't probably big enough. Uh-huh. What they were looking for, probably big, bigger man. So how old were you at that time when you got discharged? Well, that would have been about uh, about 20 at that time. Three, maybe? 23 when you were discharged? I was about 18 and a half when I finally joined. Uh-huh. So I would imagine I'd get around 20. Okay. Well, I might have been... I was in the Navy three years, three months, and four days. And I joined when I was about 18 and a half, so 18, three, 18, 19, 20. I was about 21, probably about 21, when I got out of the Navy. Uh-huh. And then what did you do when you got out? Well, I've been, uh, my dad has passed away during my Navy term, and mother is living in the old house down on 721 South 6th Street where I spent most of my teenage years. And, uh, and she, she said, uh, would you mind helping me uh, do some redecorating, painting, stuff? And I said, no, because this was in a letter, you know. And I said, well, when I get home, I'll, I'll, I'll spend, plan on spending a couple of weeks. But my, my, my plans are to go to Montana. Because I've been reading about homesteading out in Montana and I was going to go out there and homestead. And I wasn't married or anything, you know, so I was free. And, uh, and so I told mother, I said, I'll, I'll be there a couple of weeks, and then I'm going on to Montana. So, well, that's, that's okay with her. So, but in the afternoon, when I got home, then in the afternoons, I'd go downtown to a place called the Luncheonette. And it was run, they had a soda fountain, and a pinball machine, and a Nickelodeon. And uh, so I was in there, I was playing the pinball machine, and I had the Nickelodeon going. I was the only in there besides the, the people that, that owned it. Probably D.A. Young and his brother and his son, Gene. They, they rented they the young, the Youngs? Hmm? What was the, their name? And young. Young? D.A. Young. Okay. And then his son. and. They rented, what they did, they served sodas and sandwiches and stuff like that. And uh, so then I was, I was concentrating in, and as many girls as I'd been around, because in the Navy, that's the first thing Roy did was try to find a girl. <laughs> we got liberty. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I really never thought much about it. Uh, I didn't just they were girls, you know. and. Uh, but anyway, in walked these two girls, and one of them, for some reason, caught my eye, and, uh, and I went over, and they sat down at the soda fountain, and I went over and I asked this girl, I said, can I buy you a Coke? And she said, well, I've already got a Coke. So then she cut me right off, you know. So then I went back. Well, then the next afternoon, I went in there, and those same two girls came in again. So then I walked over to her and I said, well, can I take you to the picture show? We called them picture shows. And uh, she said, well, you'll have to ask my mother. So I, I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll call her mother. And she said, well, it's whatever Bonnie wants to do. You know, it's what her mother told me. And uh, so anyway, I said, uh, the next day I said to Bonnie, I said, well, your mother said, it's whatever you want to do. So, 
Anyway, she agreed to go to the picture show with me. And so I took her to the picture show. I didn't have a car, so I had to go out and get her in a taxi cab. They lived out north of town, and they, they caught about a mile north of the old Elk River. The bridge that runs down through there. And I went out there and got her in a taxi cab, took her to a taxi show, and bought two tickets, priced $10 to buy the tickets and the cash. <laughs> and uh, so then I started going, going with her, got me a job. I got, got me a job at the Independence Reporter because I'd met the, I'd met the publisher, Hub Myers Sr. He was publisher of the Independence Reporter. And I met him in a bar in Kansas City. He was in the bar. And when I was in one of those transitions between being moved around, I met him. I sit down. I didn't know who he was. I just said that he was an older gentleman. I sit down to him, next to him, because I think the bar was pretty full. I just had to sit down next to him. So he asked me, he said, where are you from, Senator? I said, well, I'm from Independence, Kansas. And he said, well, that's, that's peculiar. He said, I, I publish a newspaper there. I said, what's, what's the name of it? He said, Independence Reporter. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, yeah, I've lived in Independence most of my life. Actually, I probably was a boy, probably carried some of these papers. Cause I used to carry papers when I was a boy. And uh, so anyway, we visited a little bit, and he said, uh, what are you going to do when, I get, when you get out of the Navy? I said, well, I don't know. I really hadn't thought about it. I didn't think about going out to Montana, the homestead. and." Uh, and he so that was kind of way. But he said, well, when you get out, come in and see me. I'll give you a job. He said, I think you'd be pretty good at selling advertising. I said, well, I'll, I appreciate that. So I really never thought much about it from then on until I met Bonnie. Started going with her. So I walked into, I walked into the reporter office. Down the whole building was right down here. And I said, do you remember me? And, and he said, yeah, I remember you. I said, you told me if I needed a job, selling advertising, come in and see you. He said, well, he said, we've got a, a program set up with some kind of a federal government program where we'll, we'll pay you $80 a month and, and the government will pay you $90 a month for training, to be trained, to be trained for advertising manager. That's what I'm being trained for. So I said, well, that sounds good to me. I said, and I'll have enough that, that I think about maybe getting married. And, uh, you know, I said, well, that sounds good. So I started work for them as a training. The training was supposed to run for a period of two years. And then, they, then I'd be on my own. But in the meantime, in that two years, I was supposed to be a trained advertising manager. That was the contract. And so, but in the meantime, Hub Senior decided he wanted to run for Congress. Well, then I got active in the American Legion because I was a commander being World War II. They, they wanted a young World War II veteran to be a commander, so they made they elected me commander of the American Legion post. And uh, so I I kind of got went out and campaigned for the for the Hub Senior because you know I liked him. He gave me a chance, and so he got we got him elected. What and was he elected to? Hmm? What was he running for? Congress, United States Congress. That's when the, he ran for United States Congress. And uh, so, 
So anyway, got him elected. Well, then he had a son named Hubmar Jr. And uh, so he took over the operations. And then, but he had that, a different philosophy than his dad. He, he wanted somebody with a college degree in, in uh, advertising. Well, I didn't have a college degree. I had some college, but I didn't have a degree in, in newspaper advertising. And so as a result, he, I, he didn't have a position for me. And I, I even asked if I could buy interest in the paper based on I'd pay it so much for stock. And, but they, he wouldn't do that, so, so that left me pretty much on my own again. So then I left there, and I was told my wife, by that time I'd gotten married. What was, what was your wife's name? Bonnie, Bonnie Mae Price. Price. Mm-hmm. She was, she was in Oklahoma, and they moved up, up to Kansas on a little farm out north of town during the war years. And because her stepdad had lost his job or something in the oil field, and he came up and they had relations that had farmed out north of town. So they moved up here, moved up. She and her mother and her stepdad and her brother. She had a brother. And uh, so they moved up here during the war years. So I could, I never knew him, you know, and uh, until I got met Bonnie. But anyway, uh, uh, that was her, her maiden name. Her, her real dad's name was Price. Aaron, Aaron Price was her, was her real dad's name. And her, dad, her stepdad's name was Dan Cook, Dan Cook Sr. And uh, but anyway, I, I met her. And we ended up getting married, and so then that's that's when I got the job. Mm-hmm. And then, then when I when I no longer had the job because I couldn't qualify as a college graduate in journalism with a major in advertising, I lost out. So, so then I I went in there. I told Bonnie I said that. Well, I said I'm going to go into Chicago because Curtis Publishing Company is hiring people. And I could go in there and get me a job in Chicago working for Curtis Publishing Company. And they published Saturday Evening Post, Ladies Home Journal, and Country Gentlemen. And I'd sold those magazines when I was during the Depression. And in fact, I handled the newsstands for the Curtis Publishing Company here in Independence. Probably my F.W. Alexander was, was his regional manager for their publication. And he hired me to handle all the newsstands. And so I had some experience with Curtis Publishing Company. Uh-huh. It's the reason I thought maybe I'd have a chance of getting a job with him. And, uh, but anyway, then Bonnie said, oh, she said, I don't want to go in Chicago. And you know, she said, your mother's here, my mother's here. I don't want to go in Chicago. And I said, well, I got to get me a job. I said, there isn't any jobs around here to speak at. And she said, well, why don't you start your own paper? I said, start my own paper? Yeah. She said, why don't you start your own paper? You know, you've got experience in selling advertising, printing, and because uh, I'd taken printing in high school. And uh, so I said, well, that's an idea. So I, I talked to some of the business guys up and down Penn Avenue, Main Street, that I'd been doing business with. And they said, well, John, we don't have a Sunday paper. There isn't any Sunday paper coming up. Why don't you put out a little Sunday paper? And I said, well, I don't have any money. All I've got is an idea. 
And I said, I could probably job it out, you know, probably take some pages and everything and job the setting the type. And so they said, well, we'll pay you every week to pay the printer if you want to start a Sunday paper. And they was, well, they was all these brothers and Bernard Locke and, and Nathan Mazzell and, and a lot of those small business guys, Bud Edsel, Food Town, a lot of those small business guys, they, they, they encouraged me to go ahead, so I, I dove, dove into it, and, and uh, I, I can remember build up a little accounts receivable, and I remember one time I got overdrawn, uh, and a check got overdrawn two dollars and something, two dollars and ten cents overdrawn, and I remember old Lou, Lou Boyer Sr., he was sitting back at the old Independence State Bank building, of course, now it's uh, called Oak First Oak Bank, but that used to be. And he, he waved at me. So I walked back there. <laughs> he said, he said, you know, he said, you better learn how to balance your checkbook. He said, you got overdrawn $2.15. He said, I'm going to have to charge you a dime for being overdrawn. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I won't, it won't happen again. And it never did. I never was overdrawn after that. But, uh, but it, it was tough, tough getting started. And finally, after a period of time, I was able to... Well, I know Bernard Locke loaned me $700 to buy, to buy equipment. So I went into Kansas City with that $700. And I bought me a couple of used linotypes, a big old press, every, every, all the basic tools I needed to put out a paper. Instead of having to go job it out, I could do it myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so that's where I got started. I owed about, uh, oh, roughly about, I think around $80,000. But I, I was able, to, with that $700, I was able to get all this. And every time I got it moved in and set up, you know, it's about around $80,000. And then John Briggs and Mrs. Briggs, they owned the building. Well, they didn't own it at the time. But I needed the building to put my printing equipment in. So John Eric, where my dad had worked with him part-time, he had a building for sale at 210 West Main down here. That's where my building was. And anyway, I went in and talked to Mr. Eric, because John, John Briggs said he would buy the building for, for $6,000, but John Eric wanted $6,500. So I went out and and because uh, I needed a place to put my, you know, I bought this equipment, I needed a place. And maybe I, maybe I bought the building before I got my equipment. But anyway, I, I had to have a place to put the building. So anyway, I went down and talked to John Eric. And I said, uh, I said, John Briggs will buy this building and he'll rent it to me for $50 a month if I had my printing spread. And uh, he did he didn't have too good things to say about John Briggs. But he said, he said, John, he said, I've known your dad. We were old World War I veterans. And he said, if you need that building, he said, to help you out, he said, I'll sell it to that so-and-so for, <laughs> for $6,000. So anyway, then John Briggs agreed to buy to pay John A. So then John Briggs rented it to me for $50 a month. And then that's my boomerang equipment. And I'll say one thing about Mr. Biggs and Mrs. Biggs. They did help me wire it up, do the, all the plumbing and the heating and stuff like that to get it in operation. 
And then they painted the inside of the building. And then they, and they, and they charged me. I, I paid them fifty dollars a month for several months. And then uh, one then I was writing editorials and so forth. That kind of thing in the city hall by school or something. And uh, and I remember Mr. Briggs. Uh, he he'd been elected to the city commission. And I was I looked kind of an editorial about the way the city commission was operating. And, he didn't particularly agree with it, mm -hmm. and uh, and he came down. And he said, "Down." He said, "Don't you think you're a little harsh about that editorial in City Hall?" I said, "No." I said, "I'm I'm doing the freedom of the press, and I said I'm representing the people. And you're not doing something right up there, and I called your hand on it." But he said, "Well, yeah." He said, "I can understand your point," and I said, "Which brings up a point." He said, "To me," I said. If you got power, and I, got, I, I can't afford to move my heavy equipment around. I said, why don't you sell me this building? Because I can't afford to move and move my equipment. Because it's all heavy stuff, real heavy stuff. And, I, and he said, well, I'll talk to my wife about it. So they agreed to sell it to me because of the circumstance. See, I did, being in the newspaper business, at times you, you run into controversy. When you, when you sometimes you have to buck, buck against the power structure, you know, if you're going to do a good job, you know, representing the people and stand up for freedom of the press, but sometimes you've got to challenge the power structure, and that's what I did, and uh, and so. But anyway, they agreed to sell me the building, so I bought the building and uh, paid them fifty dollars a month until I got paid off. But they were nice enough to help me. Well, thank all these, all these people, all these people. They all, I, I was just a, I was just a, a tool. They, they, you know, they, they kept me using. They helped me, you know. But I, I had the fire, the determination, and the, the idealism, and that's pretty idealistic because I was raised pretty idealistic about things, and I even believed I didn't, you know, pretty much, and uh, so. But anyway, that's that's kind of about us. And then we got married and started having a family. Bonnie, our oldest son, he was born ten months after we were married. What was his name? John Richard. John Richard Vermillion. He he went through high school and junior college here. Played football, and uh, and he was the oldest. And then Penny, my oldest daughter, our oldest daughter. Well, I might back up. Uh, Bonnie, my late wife, passed away about 20 years ago, and uh, she was just 66 when she passed away. And uh, but anyway, we, but she gave birth to four children: uh, John, Penny, Alan, and Brooke. And then uh, John's John's now 69. Penny's 67. Alan, he he passed away. He was 65 when he passed away. And then Brooke, the youngest one, she's 61. And none of them live around here. Uh, John lives in Oak Grove, Missouri. Penny lives in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Alan lives in Wichita. Of course, he's since passed away. However, his, he was cremated and, and his ashes were buried out in his mother's and my lot out to Mount Hope. That's the way he wanted it. Uh -huh. And then Brooke, she's in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, so, 
they're kind of spread out. And I'm still, I'm, I'm batching. I've never really married. Uh -huh. I've been batching for about 20 years. I'm getting pretty good at it. The problem is that I'm old age, I'm 94, and my old age is, I'm, I'm, I'm battling to keep my driver's license uh -huh. because my vision didn't look good. And uh, I've been to eye doctors, and they said I got a cataract in this one eye, but it's so it's it's got so hard the cataract got so hard they're going to have to go in and do a kind of major operation on the eye. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I can still see a little out of it. I said, I, I at my age, I must <laughs> I'm not going to go through a big major operation on my left eye when I still see I get pretty good out of my right eye. And I still see a little bit on my left now. I'm not going to go. But, but my driver's license people, you know, they want you to have, almost have perfect vision anymore to drive a car. And I don't, so far I've got my driver's license, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go see that operation. No. But, uh, and I don't know why. I mean, I don't have any problem driving. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not a speed driver. I, and I use, I'm probably more cautious of my driving now than I used to be when I was 35. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, 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 but you got these laws, you know, and they put everybody under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. And that's what I don't like. And that's the reason I got into politics. Back in uh, 1955, I ran for the Kansas House of Representatives. Oh. And I served two terms in the Kansas House of Representatives. From 1954 to 1960, and then, uh, and then I, it, that was back when they paid five dollars a day and seven dollars expenses to be a state representative, and it was costing Bobby and I, and the family about maybe eighteen hundred dollars a month a year for me to serve in, in the legislature for about three months. So I thought, well, I can't keep doing this, so I'm going to have to. So then I ran for the United States Congress back in the 1962 election. There was five of us ran because the Republican has retired. So there was five of us ran for the Republican primary and, uh, and I came in third in the five-man race. Uh -huh. And uh, so I, I, I gave up the idea of that and then went back full time from the newspaper. And, uh, and then in 1967, the Kansas legislature had shifted some of the tax burdens and property taxes off of state-owned, state-oppressed state property taxes, like utility companies, railroads, pipelines, and so forth. And they, instead of lowering the cost of the government, they shifted the taxes over under the homeowners and the small farmers. Mm -hmm. And so, so some of those people came small small business guys and, and uh, small independent people came to me and said, John, run for the state senate. We need somebody to get up there and fight for us. I said, well, I don't, I don't know. And they said, well, get in there. I said, well, I said, Democrats have got a pretty good control of it right now. And, uh, and I said, I don't know. Well, I said, if, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. So I ran, I ran. And uh, no, nobody gave me a chance to beat me, to win it. And, uh, but I, uh, I managed to get out and win. <laughs> what what year the, was that, John? What year? In 1968, in the election of 1968. 
and I ran for the state senate, and uh, and then I got elected, and then I went to Topeka then in '69 in the Kansas Senate, and I served three terms in the Kansas Senate, and uh, and I then I I I, I thought I always fight for the general public. I, I never was what you call a real good politician. Uh, I was too idealistic, too opinionated to be a good politician. I mean, I don't like the word politician anyway. I like the word public servant much better, because that's what I, I felt like I was more of a servant than a politician. Politician has where you make kind of deals, you know, to get something for yourself, or some of your special interests. I, I never was a deal maker. You know, I, I, I was just a servant, and I would, I'd stand up and fight for what I thought was, was right. And then uh, I, I, I was able to get through Kansas Homestead Tax Refund Act, which helped a lot of, particularly widow, widow ladies and people that needed were being hit with property taxes, had minimum incomes, and uh, that helped them some, and some other people. So I was able to get that with some help, you don't do anything by yourself. But you know, I was able to convince enough guys to help me out up there, get that through. So I did. That's one thing. And then I, then I fought off the toll road. They want to build toll roads, put public toll toll gates and all the public highways. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel that was right because they were already paying gasoline taxes for the maintenance of the road. Why take that money and use it subsidized toll road bonds? And then they had to pay a toll every time they got on the highway, and then I, I was against that. And then I was for public education, you know, things that I felt were in the best interest of the general public. And uh, so, as, but anyway, I survived three terms. <laughs> but I had opposition every time, because <laughs> I was too, too opinionated, uh -huh. too idealistic. But, but anyway, so much for that. What, what are you most proud of? In, what are you most proud of in your career in the, the Senate? In the legislature? In the legislature. I'm proud that I think the Homestead Tax Refund Act uh -huh. is probably the thing that I really think helped more people. Yes. And then I was able to keep a toll, our highways becoming toll, yeah. putting toll gates on them. Right. You know, I felt like the public transportation, being able to get in and out of without having to you know, pay more to get in, to drive on your road. Because you're already paying gasoline tax. Right. You know, you're paying other kinds of tax that poor public told. So why penalize, mm -hmm. penalize when you're already paying? You know, they pay more. Uh -huh. And then they regulate you. Instead of being a public road, you'd be a private road. Uh -huh. you, you'd lose all your rights to, to a public asset. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to hitchhike to go someplace, I'd have to, I couldn't hitchhike on a private road, you know, mm -hmm. but then I could be hitchhiking on a public road. <laughs> so I was really not strong for public public highways, mm -hmm. and I'm still in. There's a lot of pressure being put on present-day legislators to make, make them put private roads so they can charge people toll, but I, I'm opposed to it. But I'm too old now to run to, to fight them, but, but I still believe in the public highway system. Ran your paper, or did you? What what happened to your paper while you were doing that? Well, when I was in the legislature, I went into Kenneth Cook, and Kenneth Cook, I got acquainted with him when he worked at the Independence Reporter, 
and he was a typesetter. He was a real good top-notch printer. He could do anything. He could keep a machine running. He, he could do anything in the print shop. And, but he was an independent guy. He didn't push him around, you know. He stood up for what he thought was right. And I always liked him. And we got along. Some of them, they said, oh, he's too hard to get along with. I got along with him all right. Because I was kind of the same kind of guy as he was. <laughs> and so, so when I, when I needed a printer, when I got involved where I couldn't do a lot of them, I, did, I talked to Kenneth, I said that. And by that time, Kenneth, Kenneth had left the reporter and went into Wichita and was working with the Wichita Eagle paper out there. And so I talked to him, I said, well, come back to Independence. And I said, uh, I'll, I'll, I may not be able to pay as much, but I said, at least you'll be in Independence because Kenneth had the uh, wife and two daughters. And, uh, and uh, so he said, well, he said, he said, I'll do it. So he came back, and so he, he ran it. He, I more or less let him run it while I was out doing these other things. And, uh, and he did a good job of it. He kept it solid. And, uh, and he kept everything going. And then, uh, and then he'd have his daughters come down. And back when we, we folded the papers by hand, we could run them off in broad sheets, but they had to be folded over and, you know, made into a regular size paper. It'd be four pages on one sheet, and it'd have to be folded over and then split and to make it a newspaper. It was kind of a lot of handwork. Uh -huh. But Kenneth uh, had two daughters. Uh, one of them was Barbara, Barbara Cook, and, uh, and the other was Karen. And Barbara, was, her son is, well, she married Bill Smith. Bill Smith, excuse me. And then Bill Smith, that's Jerry's dad. And Barbara's Jerry Smith's really? mother. Wow. And, and those girls, used, and her sister, they used to come down to photo with me. So there, there's a history there oh. that was with, uh, uh -huh. with Barbara and Karen. And, uh, and because of their dad, you know. And they had a real nice mother, too. She was a nice person. Uh -huh. But, her, but her, her dad, Kenneth, he and I hit it off pretty good. Cause we both both pretty independent guys. And, uh, but, uh, but anyway, while I was in the, in the legislature, he was, he was kind of running the paper for me. But anyway, it's been, it's been interesting. And it's getting along pretty good. And then, then technology changed. And uh -huh. uh, computers came in instead of being so much uh, uh, hard, hard, heavy work, uh -huh. became more computerized. And, uh, and then, too, you, you, you couldn't buy newsprint in a small quantity, mm -hmm. and then you could stuff all your supplies. You had to buy a lot of it. So I finally had to just close the, the printing operation down because I couldn't afford to, to pay the printing to get the material. So then I went to Coffeyville, and I, they hired, out, hired me out down there to print my papers. So then I went back where I started. It's hard to the other than that. To get it in. But now I'm back, and I'm still jobbing it out now uh -huh. because I, I can't afford that. So yeah. who prints it for you now? Hmm? Who prints it for you now? It's the, I have printed it in Pulper, Oklahoma now. Oh. But I, I just put it out once a month now because uh -huh. uh -huh. it's just too much. Uh -huh. And competition and everything, I, technology, everything changed so much. 
and my age was getting up, and I didn't have the fire to really compete. But rather than quit, why? And I, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to sell it. I just let it die out because I, I remember my my late wife, Bonnie. She said that. Uh, I said, there's a fellow that's interested in buying the paper. And there was at that time. It's been back 25 years ago. He said, I don't want to pay you much, but he said, I'd like to buy it off it. So I went on and told Bonnie, I said, I got a fellow that wants to buy the paper. And she said, I don't want you to sell it to anybody. She said, this has been in our family, and I don't want anybody else to have it. And she said, when you get tired of it, you quit it but I don't want to sell it. Oh. And, I, and I always remember that. So I'd never sell it, because she wouldn't want me to sell it. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, that's kind of the history of that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of brings tears to my eyes in a way, but, but it's, uh, it's just one of those things. That, Over your lifetime, hmm? uh, what's the more, most important lesson you've learned over over your lifetime? Well, you've got to. I, I, well, to start off with, I had real good parents, uh -huh. and, and I had a combination. I had a mother that was more the educated type person. And then I had a dad who was more of the manually type, manual labor type. Mm -hmm. So I had a good combination. Mother taught us to say our prayers and to be courteous and kind and respectful of, of all people, particularly women and children. And dad taught us, you know, you, this one. You, if you say you're going to be here in time, you better be here in time. He, if you were a minute late, you paid for it. You know, if he told you to hold those potatoes, you better hold those potatoes right. And he'd have you back out there, you got to hold him until you got him hold, hold right. So I had the combination. So that, that taught me uh, two things. I could be kind and gentle, or I could be a little on the tough side. Mm -hmm. You know, depending on what the situation would be, what it would require. Uh -huh. There's times when you've got to be kind and gentle, and there's times when you've got to be kind of tough. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise they'll run over you. You know, and uh, so, of that, of that combination, I've learned to, to be aggressive, but also to be patient. And, uh, and by all means, be courteous and stand up for what you believe to be right. Mm -hmm. don't, don't be a marshmallow where you're afraid to take a stand. You know? And that, I think that's what I've learned, basically. And that's what I've tried to apply in my life in my, in my years of living and all the different experiences I've had in life, I've tried to apply that philosophy, you know, and I, and I applied that. And fortunately, I had a, had a good wife that, was, that said she was the type of person that, that set a real good example for her children. And uh, so they had, they had a pretty good deal because they had a kind of a tough bad at times, and, uh, and then at times, 
you know, when I, when I wasn't so, I'm more kind and gentle. But, but uh, so they had a pretty, but I, that's where I got my combination, that combination of the two, two experiences, because they were both pretty idealistic people. And they, uh, they didn't believe in too much foolishness. You know, not a little bit, a little bit of pollution went a long way for them. They didn't. So I, and I don't, you know, I, I, I believe in relaxation, but I don't think it ought to take over your life. I think you need to stay steady. And uh, the many people give up too soon. You know, they don't, they don't, and they, they miss out on a lot. They give up too soon. You need, you got to stay in and keep battling. You know, you can't, and I. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to retire, you know. Next thing you know, they're dead because they're bored stiff. You know, they don't, they don't have any purpose. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a purpose in life. You've got to have a cause. And the cause has to be based on what's right and decent. And, and I'm patriotic. I'm, I'm, I'm a strong believer in America. You know, I don't want to see America dissolve into just another country in the world. I want to see the Americans stay the top country of the world, mm -hmm. you know, by our our moral principles, our financial basis, and everything else, you know, our, just our general lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like uh, your husband folks, they, they were good people, good solid people. Uh -huh. And the babies lived up in there, good solid people. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of good solid people in independence uh -huh. that, I, that I inspired to be like. And, and then just the, just the name independence, mm -hmm. you know, meant a lot to me. And, so I had, I associated with a pretty good bunch of people in my years of growing up mm -hmm. and uh, in my years of living. Of course, now a lot of those people passed on and, uh, and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of by myself now in a way because I've lived so long now. A lot of, a lot of people I went to school with, knew, sold magazines to, did things for, mm -hmm. they've all passed on. So really, I, there's not too many people that I really know. I, you know, I go out to coffee shop and I got acquainted, but I mean, I don't really know them, you know, because they're a lot younger than I am. But, uh, but it's interesting. Did, did, did I answer your question? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Anything that you wanted to say or well, or that uh, we didn't cover. No, I'm, I don't know anything. I'm just thankful that I, uh, for my reasonably good health, mental and physical health, I'm very thankful, and I trust in God, and I still believe God. I still believe in God, and I and I believe in Jesus' teaching, and uh, I don't think there's a greater substitute. I mean, there's no substitute for that. Do you go to church? Uh, I did as a boy, and I, I did when I was raising youngsters, but I must admit, since I'm old and bachelor, and I, I, I don't have the desire to, to associate, uh -huh. you know. Uh, I mean, I associate, but I don't have any desire to, to really be, you know, have a routine practice. Right. In other words, I just want to be more independent uh -huh. in my lifestyle. Okay. Really, I don't have anybody else to answer to. Mm -hmm. Now, I donate, you know, the, the good causes, uh -huh. you know, what resources I had to donate. I mean, I still 
support those things, but I just don't want to be an active part in it. You know? I mean, I, I want to be, now I listen to, like on Sunday morning, I, I, I listen to preachers on the radio, all the different preachers. I like the Lutheran preachers, I like all of these preachers. Uh, even though I, 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 I grew up in, went to the old Methodist church back over here in the corner, uh -huh. when we call it the old time Methodist church. That's back when there's more working people that belong to the old Methodist church. And my folks were, and now my mother, she was, when she, she was a Presbyterian when she, when they, in her, in her young, before marriage. Uh -huh. But after she married my dad, now they were old time Methodists. You know, uh, because they were more the working people, uh -huh. and uh, so. But when when mother married dad, then she she was coming to the Methodist church, but then she took part in in the in the women's deal. I mm -hmm. I remember she'd get book reports and stuff. She was always she was always more the sophisticated, uh -huh. you know, type that you always had to get book reports and she not but she she was a real refined lady, uh -huh. and. Uh, but uh, but uh, so I, I went to the Methodist church as a boy, and then as, as I got married, I took my youngsters to the Methodist church, and then after they all got on their own, and then Bonnie, uh, she, by that time her health was, was beginning to fail some, and then so then I we just kind of quit going, because mm -hmm. the youngsters all went their own way, and uh, they took out their own religion. I, did, I didn't tell them how to live, what. You know, I put them on their own. They had to make their own decisions. And they they all made pretty good decisions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but... Do you have grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Uh, I got, uh, uh, let's see. John, my oldest son, he has three daughters. Andy, Andy Laura, and Vanessa. And then my oldest daughter, Penny, has two boys. Jason and Adam. So there's five. Uh, Alan had twin boys and a girl. So that's three more. That's uh, eight. And then Brooke had a boy and a girl. So we got ten, ten grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Now let's see then Eddie, John, excuse me, John's oldest daughter, she got two children. And then Lori has got one, that's three. Vanessa's got two, that's five. Uh, yeah. Jason has got two, that's Penny's, Penny's boys. Penny's got two boys, so that's uh, seven. Mm -hmm. And then Alan, He's got a daughter, and she's not married, so she doesn't have any. But he's got two twin sons. One of them has four boys, uh, so that would be 11. And then the other twin son has got uh, one, so that's 12. And then uh, Brooke's daughter, Kelsey, she's got two boys, so that's four. Fourteen, the fourteen great grandchildren. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the election coming up? What do you think of the election coming up? 
Well, I'm I'm pretty much a, a Trump person. Are you? I, because uh, he's he's more the independent type. He's he's not a what you call a real politician. Mm -hmm. He's uh, he's having a hard time adjusting to politics. But but he uh, what I like about him. Well, there's things I don't I don't approve of his divorce, his marriage. He hadn't hadn't had too good a luck in his marriage. But however, he seems to be. It, all those people seem, still all seem to be together. They're not fighting one another. So there must be somebody getting something out of it. So I really can't judge him on that. What I'm judging is he's ambitious. He's an ambitious man. And he's a pretty independent guy. He's, and he's, he's dealt with tough guys. He's dealt with labor union thugs. I mean, he's had, a, he's, had, he's had to deal with a lot of pretty tough people in the craft trades. You know, they're not all Sunday school boys. A lot of them are pretty tough. He probably had to deal with the mafia, some of the cooks, and you know, he he knows the people. And uh, and then too, he seems to be just because he's got money. It, he he don't seem to be thinking about that money business. Because if he did, he'd be just just getting the sailboat or getting the yacht or something, and doing what just wasting his time. He he still got enough drive in him, and he still wants to do something. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so he's willing to set aside, you know, he don't, he's not, not bragging about, you know, I do this and I did. He, he just said, I've got $10 billion and I don't need your money, you know, uh -huh. you know. And, uh, and so I, I like that about him. And then, uh, and then too, uh, I, I, think it's, I think we need to do some new stuff in the place. These, these two political parties had gotten so worn out mm -hmm. fighting one another, you know, and the same, same old bunch, pretty much the same old bunch, fighting one another, mm -hmm. and I just want to see a clean slate. <laughs> 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 and the only one that I see offered up at is a guy like named Trump. Uh -huh. and, and so I'm willing to, I'm not taking, I'm just willing to invest my time and energy in, in the scene and get elected. He's a, he's gonna be his own man. Now I think he, I think he's the type of guy that's gonna point. He's gonna have he's gonna surround himself with a lot of awful good people. So he's not gonna just use his own head. He's gonna get all these good strong heads coming in there, uh -huh. and then he'll make a decision. But he'll get all this good good stuff coming in from not only from the international uh, folks but the, the domestic people. He, he's gonna he's gonna have some pretty smart people, and I and I think he'll have some pretty good independent people that'll bust up some of this foolishness that goes on in politics. Because there's an awful lot of voice and dreams and uh, conniving. It's costing the general public too much money. It's costing way too much money. You know we can better use that money at at, lo at the local level. You know keep it keep it down to the grassroots. Let these people keep it. Let the people invest in institutions, for instance, like your public library here. Let the people have the money to invest in it. Because otherwise they're going to squeeze all that. They're going to squeeze all the little ones out. Yeah. You know, small towns, all the little farms and everything else be squeezed out under, under this system we got going now. And both of these political parties are guilty of it. You know, they're not really standing up for the rank and file people. In the lake of community, and I.
So I think Trump's at least got a chance to see what he'll do. And uh, so only time will tell, but that's, that's where I'm going now on that. Uh-huh. I just have one more question for you. Okay. I, I'd like to know how you'd like to be remembered. Oh, I don't really know. I don't, I'm not much interested in, for instance, like when I die, I just want to be cremated uh-huh. and just have a family service. Uh-huh. I don't want to be stretched out in a coffin right. and where people come in. I mean, I've, I'm a friendly guy, and, I, and it doesn't make any difference rich, poor, a bum or a high-powered guy, they're all the same to me. Mm-hmm. I treat them all alike. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, I just, I'm a friendly guy. I mean, I don't know of anybody that I don't, don't dislike. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I just, just be remembered as a friend. Uh-huh. You know, just a friend. A friend to everyone. Hmm? A friend to everyone? Yeah, a friend to everyone, yeah. Regardless, I don't. I don't have anything against anybody that uh, is trying to do the right thing. Now, if I think anybody's trying to oppress, take advantage of somebody, I'll be happy to tell them, you know, that they're wrong and stand up against them. But as long as they treat people with respect, then I'm, I'll, I'll treat them with respect. If they take advantage of the people, then I'm going to take advantage. I'm going to let them know I don't do and try to stop it. But I, I'll do it as a friend. Uh-huh. I'm not going to use it with violence. You know, I'm not going to use violence unless they come at me. Now, if they come at me violently, they have, and I have to defend myself, and uh-huh. that's, that's something else. But there's a general rule. I'll try to be friends uh-huh. and reason with people. You know, and, uh, and that's just do that as a friend. That's all I know. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Oh, no, really, I don't. Yeah, I've talked so much now. <laughs> You've been very patient. Oh, it's very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's all up to God. I mean, I'm just been, he put me down here for a reason, and I guess he'll take me for a reason, you know. But I, I appreciate this, this, uh, this opportunity. Oh, it's nice you. of you to, you to let me kind of Get it out of my seat, get it out. Because I think about that, you know, I reminisce uh-huh. about things in my life. And, uh, but so you let me talk about it. <laughs> you can come back and talk to me anytime. Well, I appreciate that. Well, you're a very fine person. Oh. I appreciate that. Thank you.